Hello, I'm Matthew Packwood and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be chatting to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation and visual effects artists. Today, I'll be talking to Brett Morris, one of Australia's leading animators and designers working in the US. He's previously worked at Foxtel and Capacity and has made a name for himself as an awesome motion artist who specialises in 3D. Welcome, Brett. Thanks very much for taking the time to give us an insight into your experiences in the motion design industry. Cool. Thanks for having me. What advice do you have for students who are developing their skills and preparing their showreels? Do not, for any reason, put any tutorials in your showreel. That's like the number one giveaway of either not being prepared to work in a studio environment or just the lack of willing to prepare your own work. Uh, over the years, I've seen many showreels. You can kind of tell when you're seeing something that's straight from a tutorial. I'd say that's probably just the biggest thing. I think in the early days, especially when you're trying to figure out your own style, the more it can be a cohesive look and style, the better it looks, just because it's not so all over the map when you're presenting a body of work. What's the duration you prefer in a showreel? Well, I think a general rule of thumb in the industry is to keep the showreel about a minute. I think especially when you're starting out, you just want to make it short, punchy and, you know, trim the fat. How do you sharpen both your creative and technical skills and keep on evolving and improving your style? You know, I'm always trying to push myself. So I try and have a routine where I'm waking up quite early in the morning. I'll try and get some level of self-development in. So it could just be a matter of experimenting uh, just with new toolset, more than happy to sit through tutorials and rewatch tutorials that I've done in the past. I just find that any extracurricular self-development goes a long way when you're trying to improve and get better and work on your own style. I was quite fortunate that I worked in a top-tier design studio for quite some time, and so being surrounded by other really talented designers, art directors, and creative directors definitely pushes you because... They'll see stuff that you can't see in your work and over time your eye will naturally develop so you're now seeing those kind of improvements in your own work and I think as long as you're you know, always pushing yourself, you're never satisfied with where your work is at, you'll always want to make sure that you're giving it your absolute best and I think that level of passion really comes through in the work so even if the work that you're doing right now isn't absolutely the best it can be, if you're pushing yourself on every single job and getting a little bit better and better, you'll look back at your work many years down the line and say, yeah, like it wasn't the best, but every little increment on every single project, all those risks that you take, all that self-development that you're doing, it just it's, it's always stewing in the background and it compounds a lot over time. So now I want to talk a little bit about your experience with working with women in the industry. What's your experience been like? Have you worked with many female motion designers? And what would you say to young female students who are preparing to get into the industry? Yeah, over the years, I've always worked with women in the industry. Back when I was still in Australia, working at Foxtel, I would say the percentage might have been about six, 60 to 40 male to female. So there was always a strong presence of females that I was always working with. And then when I went to Capacity, we had probably one of the most talented artists I've ever worked with was a lady who was married to one of the creative directors. She was, yeah, just absolutely phenomenal artist to work around. And so, yeah, you know, it's a professional environment. Everyone gets along and everyone does a 
great job of being there for the team and, and doing their best. That's cool. Now, I want to dive back a little bit into your past. Tell us a little bit about how you discovered After Effects. I kind of discovered motion design just by chance because I went to film school and I went there to become an editor. I really had a desire to work in film. But as it was like a film and television course, just throughout collaboration with some of the animation students, we kind of discovered After Effects. After Effects was really intriguing to me because it kind of seemed like a smoke and mirrors thing at the time. We were shown some, you know, very basic visual effects pumping techniques and it just kind of really hit a trigger with me. And so as I was learning in school and, and kind of starting to figure out how the whole film and television process worked, I was working for a production company on the side. And that production company specialized in live events, doing a lot of like live screen presentations as well as creating some content for it. And they worked on productions in Australia like uh, Aria's MTV Awards. Uh, they did a, basically every season of Big Brother. And so I was working with this production company, getting a little bit more experience, helping out on production, but also getting a peek into what they would actually create and how they would manipulate the content for the screens through After Effects. So I kind of tiptoed around After Effects for a while and just through the evolution of project to project, we would get given some 3D assets, pre-rendered content. And it was always just couldn't wrap my mind around how someone could create 3D trophies spinning on a, on a platform. But I think it was just out of curiosity that I started working in 3D and, and started, you know, reading manuals and, and watching presentations and talks and just trying to wrap my brain around this whole concept. Because when you're coming into something like 3D and you're not aware of how it works, it's quite a daunting topic. So it was just a very natural, organic evolution from learning an editing program all the way into diving deep into 3D. Did you start off using 3D Max or Maya or was it Cinema 4D from the beginning? Yeah, I've been fortunate that I learned everything on cinema. My path of 3D experience has been very much cinema orientated. I did have a little bit of an insight into 3DS Max when I was at college, but I didn't even put a mouse to a screen on that. I just kind of watched how the, some of the other students would work with it. But yeah, working in 3D was an interesting sort of like, yeah, aha moment. We worked with a, an artist called Christopher Weeks, who is now a film writer here in Hollywood. And he was just a, in my eyes, was just a supremely talented guy, an artist, because he just picked up any bit of software and he just knew how to make it work. And so he came from Maya and he was working in our studio and he just had a challenge and he'd just look up something online and then he was just, you know, off to the races doing what he needed to do. And so I was kind of always kind of intrigued in how his mind worked and, and how he was, you know, doing what he was doing. And we had a project where it was just like a little commercial for, it was a phone company back in Australia and it was a full 3D commercial where Chris was just kind of like building this city and it was all very crude, just texture maps on the buildings. It, there was very low detail, but having him kind of lead me into, okay, let's build these buildings in this sort of formation, use these textures. When you've done that, add some lights in. When you've done that, add a surface thing. And having someone that would kind of show me the way and show me this process was kind of like, I don't know, I, I felt really stoked at the end of that project because just by hitting render and seeing all the buildings populate and the lights, you know, the visible visible lights for the street lights, it was like, oh, this is really cool. And so those very like early projects where I was still didn't have my footing at all when it came to 3D, like felt totally overwhelmed. But just those little wins just kind of all added up over a series of six months or so before I felt like, oh my God, like I love this. And 
that really just kept me on that path of just learning and learning. So now I'd like to talk a little bit about your evolution as a designer and 3D artist. So over the years, as you got better and better, how did your techniques and styles evolve? Well, my work has evolved naturally just by the fact that I've had some pretty clear influences from the very beginning. And I've always admired how certain studios and designers had approached their work. And I would really gravitate towards certain techniques and lighting styles and texturing, color, all that sort of stuff. So I think I've always had those kind of beacons of light to, to pull me towards what I like to see in design. So, you know, in the very early years when I was at Foxy, I used to look up to capacity being a studio. There was one size. There was a French designer called Pierre Magnol. And a lot of these studios that I would see, you know, way back when, I was always just, yeah, looking at their form, their movement, and then having the chance to work with capacity for so, so many years, definitely just kept working on that style. And like I said, being around the other designers and art directors where that style is really bred, you know, you feed off that and you always grow and working from project to project, you're always refining your voice. And I still don't totally know what my voice is. You know, I think from project to project, I would assume that I just make the decisions along the process of the project that ultimately end into a place where I feel it looks good. And there's probably reminiscence of some of my earlier work because that's what I was always striving for. So now I'd like to talk to you a little bit about what it was like working at such a giant cable company like Foxtel. So how was it? I enjoyed it. I worked with a really good group of people. I had come from a production company that only had two employees and then myself and then scaled up to three motion designers. So I came from a very small, humble beginning where it was a very lean team and we had to be really versatile. It didn't matter what type of project or client we were working for. It could have been a live production, commercial, bit of broadcast, game show. And then stepping into Foxtel was a total change of scenery. So I landed in the internal design department for Foxtel and they were just called Foxtel Design and they kind of catered to a lot of the factual channels. So it was like History, W, Arena, maybe Bravo. It was just a, a small selection of the internal Foxtel channels that we would just work directly with. Some of the larger channels like Fox 8 actually had their own internal designers. So we were kind of for all of the overflow. And that was really nice. You know, there was a really good group of people from the creative director, the producer, the art director were just very creative. You know, they, they worked for a big company, so they knew how to manage all of the stuff that would be happening above us. They did a really fine job of making sure the design team was looked after. We felt passionate about our job. We, we had a lot of fun jobs. Like we, we would do stuff for the Commonwealth Games, the Olympics. There was a handful of like really interesting campaigns that came through various channels. So working for a giant company is one thing, but when you're working for a small internal team that had a lot of filter from above, it felt quite lean. You know, there was only between six to eight designers and there was out of that probably two of them print designers and the other handful were... Uh, motion designers. And one of those people at the time was John Dickinson, who had kind of gotten me the job in a very indirect way. He put a, a tweet out just saying, hey, Foxtel's looking for people. I was a big fan of John Dickinson. So, you know, to land in Foxtel and then work with someone who you're, you know, a genuine fan of, uh, was a pretty cool experience. That is cool, Grant. So what were the production schedules like? It ranged from project to project. I mean, I remember one of the boxing campaigns, the main event, you know, they'd come in and they'd say, hey, we need something done in two days. And so you'd make a full campaign in two days. 
And then there'd be other projects that they'd have like a lead time of like two or three weeks for design and then, you know, a month of production. You really had like the full spectrum of projects coming through that just depending on what sort of budget they had for it. From memory, we worked some long hours, but it was pretty contained. I think we had probably one of the best producers I've ever worked with in my career working there. She just did an outstanding job of just making sure that the client was managed. Design team was always hitting their um, check-ins and deliveries. There's always a bit of weekend work. There's always a couple of late nights here and there. But, you know, it, it was quite, it, you know, it felt like a, another lifetime ago. But it was, from memory, it was quite well managed. Well, when you've got a team like the ones they have at Foxtel, it's much easier for you to absorb the extra work. I found that when you're working in a small business or working for yourself, that's when it's really hard and you end up doing the long hours and really long weekends just because you don't have the extra people. Yeah, that's right. Definitely, uh, yeah, having that safety net or like the support network around you at a bigger company definitely goes a long way in those situations. Yeah, it's great to have a nice studio of people to help you out. So in that studio environment where you're developing Foxtel's brand, did you get a sense of personal ownership in the brand and were you able to develop your design and animations to suit your interpretation of the brand? There was a little bit of it for sure. Basically, about two or three years into Foxtel, there was a bit of a reshuffling with the structure. And part of that, they set up an actual Foxtel on-demand channel. And so I was kind of asked to join that team. And while I was at Foxtel on demand for a little while, I found that doing, you know, the same old formula of movie title campaigns. So you'd, you'd always do a couple of supers, like full frame sort of interstitial of type. And then you'd have a end pack shot. And maybe if you're lucky, you could do like a 3D type comp in, in one of the shots or like a little bit of VFX work. When I was in that rhythm, I found that a lot of the work I was doing was for Foxtel, you know, it wasn't as satisfying as, as a creative would want it. So there was a couple of chances where part of this kind of reshuffling we needed to make, you know, rebrand the channel. Part of that process when I created the idents for the channel, that was a little bit of me making work for myself. But I don't think anyone looked at that as me making it for my brand or my company if I, if I had one. It was more like the company recognized I had a lot of passion for these projects, so they wanted to see me create they knew that uh, after a couple, I think after the first two, that I kind of proven the concept. They were like, okay, just keep going. So for me, that was more about me just satisfying my need to be fulfilled in my position and the company, the, the channel benefited from that. Yeah, I'm sure they definitely did. So it sounds like you had the opportunity to have some creative freedom, which is really great. What's been your experience working with clients? Did it differ at Foxtel between the brands and the different channels? And what was it like at Capacity? Well, I think there's no like black or white answer for that. I think depending on the client and what the client wanted, sometimes it was a very strict brand guide or a very specific requirement that they needed from the project. So, you know, those sorts of situations, you've definitely got to toe the company line and, and make sure that the client is happy. Uh, sometimes, yeah, I mean, I couldn't give you like a, a ratio, but, you know, there were quite a few projects that would come in and, and the client being comfortable and uh, confident with capacity would certainly let us design and make something really cool. And uh, it didn't matter if we were pitching or we were hitting the ground running with production. There was there was always a bit of exploration. There was always a bit of freedom to, to create something in those projects. So, you know, I'd always just look at it as like, okay, well, you know, this project's for the client. That's fine. You know, we're just going to get in, get the job done. Projects that were selfishly, I could say, well, you know, I, I think this project's for me a little bit more than it's for you. 
you know, I'd, I'd try and keep pushing it and pushing it. And so those sorts of projects definitely had a little bit more freedom, but that was kind of by, by just sheer will. Excellent. Okay, Brett, let's just move on a little bit. How did you end up with capacity? Is there a story behind that? My story is kind of interesting because from a very young age, I knew I wanted to work in America. I grew up watching the NBA and the NFL and always wanted to live in America. And so when I kind of knew that I wanted to get into film, I thought, okay, well, obviously that's where Hollywood is. Let's set our sights on America. And as design sort of evolved with my career, you know, LA and New York are a mecca for for design. America seemed to be the top choice. Just by chance, I had these idents that I'd been working on at Foxtel. You know, I'd be really proud of them. I'd been just working my ass off just to get them to where they needed to be. And around that time, I started to build up like a semi-decent body of work. You know, I, I had a little bit of variety up there. So I thought, okay, it's about time I kind of try and make this online portfolio do what it needs to do. And part of that process was writing a bio and and my girlfriend is a writer and she was kind of like, you know, the bio is fine, but you should really let people know what you want to do. So the very last line of the bio, it says, Brett's end goal is to work with design studios around the world, such as Capacity and I named two others. And it was just by chance that these idents that I'd been working on did the rounds online, you know, they they got, you know, enough views that they got in front of the right people at capacity. And by chance, they were looking to hire someone new. They went to my site, read that my bio, I wanted to work with them. So it was a no brainer for them. They, they reached out to me and they said, hey, you know, we're really liking what you're doing. Any chance you'd want to, you know, move over to America, come and hang with the team. So it was, it was a pretty quick decision once that email came through. And, you know, from there, we started the visa process. I went in very nervous. Capacity was a huge influence in my early years in my career. You know, I aspired all of my work to be as good as theirs, even though it wasn't. But I had that high level of uh, expectation of what I wanted to be creating. So to be invited to work in a studio like that was quite an honor. And uh, I remember the very first day that I went to the studio, I was like super nervous. I was like shaking, but I just flown all the way from Sydney. I had everything packed up in my bag. And, you know, as soon as the door opened and I got hugs from all the team and, you know, they just made me feel, you know, part of the family and, and really welcomed. And, you know, just being in that environment where, you know, people genuinely care for each other is really good for that creative process. And so, you know, once I became familiar with the process and started feeling a little bit more comfortable in production there, it was just up to me, up to my own ambition and my own drive to keep pushing myself that... I would not only be able to keep my job and be able to continue living in the, in the country, but also do well that, you know, I could take on more responsibility and lead the team and, and take on, you know, challenges that the studio would need to solve in these, you know, more complex projects to step up. And I wanted to be that person that solved it. So that was just all determination and will just to make sure that I kept up with the pace and did well while I was there. That's a really great story, Brett. It's really impressive. A little bit of luck and then a lot of hard work. And yeah, you've got some great work to show for it. Was it challenging moving to America? What was the visa process like? It's a pretty grueling process. I'm currently on an O1 visa. I was previously on an E3 visa with capacity. The biggest thing about the E3 is you need sponsorship from a company. So you need to have a company committed to sponsoring you. The only prerequisite that you need to have is that you have a degree in the field of your employment in the US because the US just wants to make sure that if you're coming over that you're at least qualified 
Unfortunately for me, I never finished my degree. Just by chance, I got offered a really good opportunity while I was at college and I decided to bail on my final year of the degree. So when I went for my E3 visa, I needed to actually um, kind of prove to the US government that even though I didn't finish my degree, I had enough work experience that, yeah, maybe I have an equivalency of a degree. So that was quite a difficult process, but thankfully I had attorneys and representative company kind of taking care of all of that. But that was that was quite a grueling process. So that's basically my only thing that I would say if you're going for an E3, just make sure you've got a degree or look into it a little bit further and make sure you've got enough years of uh, work experience. And then now I'm on an O-1 visa, which is completely different. Um, it's about 100 times more grueling than the E3. The O-1 is, in the government's eyes, an alien with extraordinary ability. So you need to prove to the government that you are talented. And the government being a government and a creative industry being a creative industry, there's no real measurement of what talent is. So uh, you're asked to have letters of recommendations from uh, industry leaders uh, and a lot of letters of recommendations. You're asked to prove throughout your career that you've achieved. Basically, you've got to prove that you're really accomplished through winning awards being invited to be judges on design award panels, presentations, public speaking. So thankfully, I had won a couple of Pro Max awards while I was in Australia for Foxtel, which was probably the one little bit of information that got me over the line. Even though I earned them years and years ago and had gone on and done, in my opinion, better work, the government saw those awards as, okay, he was the best in this field in that particular year. Yes, okay, we consider giving him a, a visa. So... It's a big, long process. There's uh, lots and lots of paperwork that has to be filled in. I had a private attorney working on my behalf, making sure my application is is correct and and buttoned up. And it's a very stressful and nerve-wracking experience. But once you get it, uh, it's just the greatest sigh of release. And so now I'm fortunate enough that with my current visa, I can freelance in the States. I can work with various companies. I can set up my own company. I've just got a lot more freedom. So for me, in this part of my career, it's it's definitely worthwhile. I would like to talk a little bit more about capacity. I'd love to hear a little bit about your day-to-day work as a technical director. Day-to-day tasks really vary. I mean, I, I was still heavily involved with the creative process and, and also on the production, animating, compositing side of things. Where my role really comes into play is generally on the front end of a large-scale project. So Uh, If I just pull one of the projects off the top of my head, if I talk about the NFL uh, total access job of 2015, that job came through. I was not actually involved in that design process. Some of the other designers had done all the heavy lifting as far as, you know, planning out all the scenes and, and there was some style frames that the client was working with, but the style frames were very uh, time intensive to prepare and also render and composite and it was it was quite a very very long process but you know in those early stages of a project you're just kind of on the fly just you know freestyling jamming getting it to look right and you're less worried about how to actually make it so at that part of the process that's when I come in and kind of just take a step back from the whole process and just kind of objectively look at everything that's involved from the very beginning to the very end so building out systems where uh, any work that's done in Illustrator would talk to cinema. Cinema would procedurally generate a lot of the assets, 
and a lot of the shading techniques would be filtered in from After Effects and the rendering pipeline had a certain requirement so that by the time that you get to compositing, I've built all these systems that any of the other artists can jump into. They don't need to worry about what's happening under the hood. They simply just need to worry about the creative part or the objective animating part of implementing whatever the the assets are. And there's a system that automatically populates it for them. Then they can just kind of focus on their animating of the textures. They render out something that feeds into another system. So I'm basically just there to um, look at the large scope of the process and figure out, okay, if I can take a couple of days on the front end to build all these systems, not only are we able to give our the most junior artists a very complex task, but I also know that I'm saving everyone else a considerable amount of time throughout the process because these certain parts of the process are totally mitigated by any of these systems that I build. So I say systems in a very sort of agnostic way. That could be something you know internally that's happening inside of cinema, um, whether it be Espresso or code that's kind of looking at certain bits of information or a rig that's built for a very specific purpose. And then all the way on the other side of After Effects, being rigged with you know, a series of expressions, holding certain things together that you don't even need to think about what's happening. You simply just hit a checkbox. Everything does what it needs to do exactly to the mathematical number of what's needed. And then once you animate, you render out your texture and then it, it's all automated. So that's that's where I come in. I mean, there's other projects where we'd have a lot of simulation tasks. So, you know, whether it be fire or just, you know, particle effects work. You know, just going through that process of just R&D, building certain effects rigs that with, again, like minimal input from an, an artist, they can just focus on maybe blocking the animation or just, you know, figure out the composition of the shot. And then I can just build all these other layers that go on top where they can still do these very complex simulations, particle work. But again, it's kind of mitigated down to a couple of sliders so they can be more focused on the aesthetic and the animation opposed to technically how things are being built and you know what's happening under the hood so it's a very organic job even though it's technical because everything you're working on is constantly evolving you know I might look at a specific task through my lens and I'll do what I think is the correct way but it's not until you give it to another artist that's working on the same project you know same process that they might say oh wouldn't it be cool if we could do this? Or it might be direction from the client or one of the creative directors that, you know, you need to kind of evolve. And so always thinking about the work as being a very like malleable sort of state. It's just a constant evolution. And the goal is to create systems that just reduce tons of time while keeping the output and the quality of the work the absolute highest it can be. Was there much training of the junior staff once you implemented your pipelines? Yeah, so I'm constantly having a dialogue with everyone. That whole back and forth between the artists, like I said, like if they're in need of using it in a different way, I'll have to, you know, adjust whatever I've worked on to suit their needs. So there's a constant dialogue of training to make sure they feel comfortable with it. But generally, you kind of get someone up to speed with what you're doing. You leave out the technical terms. You just kind of say, do this. This is what's going to happen. You play with it. And generally, the next conversation you have with them, it's like, oh, hey, it was really cool I was doing this. Wouldn't it be cool if I could do this? And so you're talking to people that are very talented at what they do and they are experienced as well. So you generally don't need to do a lot of hand-holding. It's more just like, hey, at a top level, this is what this system does. You need to get from A to B. This is how you do it. And then once you figure that out, 
you can keep adding in any of your sort of flavour over the top. What do you think the benefits are of having a technical director in the studio? And do you think that it frees up more time for the designers to be more creative? Or do you think that it saves the studio money because there's less time in production? Both, absolutely. I'd say that you can save the company money because you can mitigate enormous amounts of time just by these systems being processed for free with you know a system that's built on the front end. And at the same time, you're able to make sure while you're building those systems that you're maintaining the absolute highest quality uh, that the project needs. So you're thinking about both of those elements while you're in, in that sort of role. Let's talk a little bit about your creative process. Do you work more as a designer or do you work more as an animator? Or do you generally do both when you're in production? I think the lines are quite blurred for me these days. I certainly enjoy the 3D design aspect when it's simply just doing it for design and coming up with the creative and coming up with the concept and style frames. But yeah, while I'm always designing those uh, frames and ideas, I'm constantly thinking about how I'm actually going to make this. Yeah, it's a little bit blurred for me these days. And I think as I go on and grow as an artist, it becomes more blurred unless I'm in a situation where I'm not thinking about a certain part of the process because someone else is doing that for me. What influences you and what's your process when it comes to coming up with ideas? I tend to think a lot longer than in actually creating when I'm doing a project. So that might just be looking at references. It might just be doing some sketches. And I really just try and allow myself to just let the idea come about. So when I do finally start working in 3D, I've already got like a little bit of an idea in my mind, but that's only really like planting the seed. Uh, so once I'm in 3D, I'm totally open to just exploring and seeing what comes of it. And a lot of the times I find that the first concept that I start creating is just total throwaway, but I've learned something in that process that I can gravitate towards and then actually create a series of boards. And then in that process, it could be a matter of just creating enough assets that I know I can get a, add a couple of cameras, I can get enough of a building block so when I'm throwing things into After Effects, I've got enough to play with. And then from there, it's, it's a whole other evolution on you know finishing those frames and, and making them the quality that they need to be. Do you design your frames in uh, After Effects or do you do them in Photoshop? I am 100% After Effects for all design work. That's just something that I've, I've just always worked that way I work in Photoshop when I need to, if I'm dealing with textures for 3D. There's obviously a lot of reasons to work in Photoshop, but for me, that whole production mindset, I'm so comfortable inside of After Effects that I just work a lot more efficient and I'm just way more fluid with my mind to whack on uh, free flow of uh, working through ideas and, and problems in After Effects than I am in Photoshop. I find that just not knowing shortcuts, not knowing particular sort of methods to do what I need to do uh, in Photoshop really holds me back. So, you know, in After Effects, I feel super, super comfortable. I pretty much exclusively only design in After Effects for that. Do you ever just take the ideas from, say, a verbal idea straight into animation? would definitely animate after the design process. I would generally stay out of animation until either the concept was sold or... You know, we had the green light to actually move forward. I mean, I take that back. There's there's definitely room for a motion test in the design process, but I think it's wise to just stick to design while you're in that style frame. 
part of the process because you're just focusing on selling the idea. You're not selling production portion of it. If I'm in the design stage, uh, I, I'm totally okay just doing crude elementary versions of whatever the production side of the 3D is going to be just to get the idea across. And in that sort of process where I have to generate something in 3D, I'll do the most quickest build from A to B that I possibly can do. I'll do the most elementary lighting and styling of the scene. And then I'll try and just make it look as best as I possibly can in After Effects. But I know when we go into production, I need to take that step back and start thinking like, okay, this crazy thing that I was doing over there that looked really cool in that style frame, like that's going to be that's going to be really difficult to actually bring alive. So yeah, I think it's more important just to get the idea across in the design stage and then you can really get into the nitty gritty details once you get in production. As I said before, with the, you know, thinking about 3D technical direction sort of stuff, all of that work that I'm doing in that design stage in 3D is kind of like the first wave of R&D. You know, I'll, I'll learn a ton about whatever the asset is, whatever the scene is, just from those, that, that part of the process. So when I go into production and I need to you know, start figuring out how to build it for real, I'm pretty intimate with the scene already. You know, I kind of know the ins and outs of it, so I can usually hit the ground running. Wow, I, I really feel like I've got an insight into your process now. Thanks very much for that. I'd like to talk a little bit about the pitching process and how often you pitched at capacity and what the process was like and if you think it's a fair process. We would pitch often, but working for a studio like Capacity, they tend to have a lot of repeat clients or clients that are inclined to work with them because of the work that they would produce. So I, I couldn't give you the exact uh, percentage, but it could have been 70, 30, 70%. We were just hitting the ground running as soon as they gave us the green light. And yeah, 30% of the time we were pitching. The pitching process is it's a necessity of the client-vendor relationship. I think it's a good chance to sell the idea and make sure that the client's on board with it, especially if they're opening up their, their wallet to pay for it. I think they need to feel comfortable that if they're about to buy a $200,000 car, that they know it's a $200,000 car that's going to arrive on their driveway when it finally is delivered. I understand that it's not always the most favorable sort of situation for smaller shops to be in because uh, sometimes there just isn't a budget to pay for a pitch. Uh, and then in those sorts of situations, I, I feel opposed to it because uh, a design studio has to pay bills and the creative uh, talent that works in that studio is probably not cheap. You know, those people need to be paid. And so I think, um, yeah, I think, you know, companies that, that pay for pitches, I think are doing the right thing. But obviously not every company uh, has that sort of philosophy towards it. Now, let's move on to a movie type. What led you to develop movie type? And has it been a passion project or a for-profit venture? Yeah, movie type came about, I want to say like seven, seven or so years ago. John Dickinson and I worked at Foxtel and while we were working at On Demand, we would just day in, day out, just be working on all these different sort of uh, film titles. And part of that process, you know, you, you develop these like little tools to help you to get from A to B. And, you know, the more tools that you'd have in your arsenal, the quicker you could get jobs done. And so, you know, it's just an organic sort of evolution of having this conversation where, uh, you know, John has motion works and, and had a series of tools and training. And so, you know, just one day out of the blue, he was like, hey, like, you know, we're doing this stuff. We've got these things. We've got access to them. Like, let's, you know, consider what a, what a product looks like. 
at the time, we thought it would be a, a an elementary version of what we were using, just, you know, maybe just packaged up and easy for um, a user to jump into. But as we were developing it, you know, both of us had bigger and better ideas and on how to make the tools better and more efficient. And so the development process went for quite a few months. I think I probably spent about six months of, you know, out of office times working on it. But in that process, you know, we built a really well-rounded product, you know, for me, just going through that development process and, and looking at the software in a totally different light helped me tremendously in my career, just diving that deep into the software. And so when we were ready to sell the product, you know, we put it out and we were really, really happy with the reception. You know, we, we had all sorts of purchasing studios that we respected. And so to, to see that they made purchases of this thing was, uh, was really encouraging. And so over the years, uh, you know, we've kept up with developments of other 3D applications. Like we did a version for Element 3D a couple of years back. We most recently did a movie type version two, uh, where we basically just went went back into the tools and looked at them under a totally different lens. And that was just looking at it like, okay, we have a little bit more features that we can add in. We can optimize these tools. What are the things that have kind of been nagging us that we could make better? And we asked some users for some suggestions, you know, see what other people were interested in adding into the mix. So the movie type version two was like a really big push. And, you know, we spent quite a few months making sure that that was, you know, zipped up and best product it could be. And, over the years, you know, it, it has been profitable. I wouldn't say it's been like life-changing money, but uh, it's been enough that it's kept us both interested in in the development and the future uh, future life of the project. I think if it was something that sat on the shelf and didn't do anything, it'd probably be a thing of the past, but it's done enough that uh, John and I are, are always talking and, and seeing how we can improve things. So it's been both a passion project and a profitable project at the same time. Yeah, well, that's got to be the aim when you can get your passion projects to make profit. I think that's great. So now you've left capacity and you're working freelance. So what do you see for yourself in the future and what sort of projects would you like to work on? My partner and I were delighted to find out that we're uh, expecting a little baby at the end of the year. So going freelance, a, a huge motivator for you know that lifestyle. Uh, just wanting to be present for my family and thankfully working in motion design, you kind of uh, given the luxury of working remotely. You know, down the line, I think I'll I'll continue doing more um, passion projects, freelance. I can at least you know manage my hours and and between you know paid work and family life, hopefully I can still afford some bandwidth towards a personal project. Uh, down the line. So that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. I, I, I'm lucky that uh, I have the opportunity to go overseas and speak on behalf of software company Maxon. And I just went to Abu Dhabi a couple of weeks ago to speak at a design conference there. So, you know, being able to say yes to a lot of these things that, you know, in the past I wouldn't have been able to because of just, you know, simple vacation scheduling conflicts. So now it's just a new chapter where I get to say yes to everything. And uh, it's very exciting. If you get to say yes to everything, what would you really like to say yes to, say, in the next 12 months? The Pause Fest project that I did was probably the most creatively fulfilling project that I'd worked on. I was just because it was under my own direction. I didn't have a client. I was just creating for the sake of creating and you know, having some buddies of mine that are super talented help out and collaborate and just absolutely kick butt was, was really enjoyable. So I think going forward just seizing any opportunity that kind of fits that parameter again. So I'd certainly like to do music video clips, whether it be in a design form or a live action form. Music videos have always been a 
a big influence on me and, and how I've looked not only the, the visual sense of direction, but the musical side and just how those paired it together. So not being opposed to doing like title sequences for design festivals, those sorts of things where, you know, there's purpose, there's a scope, there's a timeline. If I'm in a position where I can work for a couple of months and then take a month off to work on a personal project that happens to be a title sequence or happens to be a music video, that's certainly something that I'm interested in in the next chapter. In LA, it's a great place to get great projects. Is there any chance you could possibly get a HBO opening title sequence? That'd be pretty awesome. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's impossible. I think it's just getting the right connections and your right foot in the door to speak to those people, potentially work on that because, yeah, it's all about, you know, getting eyeballs from the people that, you know, are interested in working with you or getting in front of them. That was fantastic, Brett. I think that you've given a great insight to what it's like to work in America and to work on some really high-profile projects, right? Thanks very much for your time. We really appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much for listening. And if you like what you heard, please give us a review on iTunes. And you can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au or you can come find us on Facebook. You can find Brett Morris at brettmorris.tv. Our intro music was from the Australian artist John Vella. Hope you have a good week. See you later. Bye. Masters of motion. Masters of motion. Bye-bye.